0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 161 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Cowboy Up, an interview with Elizabeth Brannan. My name is Richard Johannesson.
1: And I'm Matt Sabatello.
0: Matt, we met this really interesting gal who had this cowboy profession or this cowboy career and this cowboy up philosophy where you just grit through everything. And unfortunately,
1: that identity didn't always serve Liz well during her Lyme disease journey. And Rich, Liz's interview started off like many others. She talked about using antibiotics and even hyperbaric oxygen therapy to treat her Lyme disease, but then she went into great detail about using her resourcefulness to find alternative treatments that normally wouldn't be financially available to people. The beauty of the story, in my
0: view, Matt, is that Liz was willing to accept a certain level of success in her treatment journey until she was challenged by her sister. And her sister said to her, you have to change your identity and she got into therapy to deal with her emotional issues so she could get back on her treatment journey. So, Matt, I'm really excited to introduce Cowboy Up Liz Brandon, to our Tick Boot Camp community. Hey, Liz, and welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited.
0: Um, we're really excited to have you as well, Liz. So talk to us about um, where you live and all about the cowboy experience that you, uh, you live on a daily basis.
2: <laughs> well, now I live in Ventura, California, in Southern California. I live right next to the beach. Um, it takes me like 10 minutes to get to the surf and about 30 minutes to get to the mountains. Um, it's beautiful. I love it. I don't live a cowboy lifestyle so much anymore. Um, that is one of the things uh, Lyme has impacted um, on a day-to-day basis, Um my folks used to lease a place up in Northern California and we moved down here about seven, eight years ago. Um, but yeah, the, the cowboy stuff on a daily basis in the, in the old days used to start early in the morning and end late at night.
0: <laughs> so talk to us about cowboying and cowboying up, uh, you know, Matt and I are from the East coast. We don't know anything about cowboys. And in fact, We were kind of interested when we saw your uh, pre-question interview um, questionnaire, uh, you were calling yourself a cowboy rather than a cow gal. So help us out with that.
2: (laughs) Oh, okay. Um, Well, I guess uh, when I was little cowgirls, I just uh, associated it with people that were like booty shorts or people that went to the county fair, you know, <laughs> which is terrible. So I just adopted that term. Um, but my dad used to cowboy and I use the term cowboy as opposed to a rancher because a rancher is someone that, you know, owns cattle and works his ranch and his cattle that way. And my dad worked for someone else. Um, so cowboying, you take care of like what I used to do and what my dad used to do, you take care of beef cattle and you take care of the land that they, um, live on and work on. And, and so, yeah, you, you feed cows, you doctor cattle, you, you cab them (laughs) in the wintertime or the springtime. Um, yeah, you fix fence, you all, all the things.
0: So give us uh, uh, an idea of what your childhood was like during these times in Northern California, um, other than the cowboy experience.
2: Yeah. So I had a really random childhood. Um, it was, it was lovely, but uh, we bounced around a lot. So my dad used to be a cop um, in this County, in Ventura County to worked for the sheriff's department as a SWAT cop. And um, he ended up getting, Uh, wounded in the Rodney King trials and they retired him and they were like, well, what do you, what do you want to do? And he had always worked with leather and been interested in, in cowboying and all, you know, little boy dreams like that. And so he ended up going to saddle making school and he became a saddle maker. And um, after a couple of years of working that he got to the point where he felt like to become better craftsmen, he needed to use his tools every day. So he started cowboying. He got a job on a ranch in Northeastern Nevada, and we moved up there when I was six. And I totally fell in love with that country, the Great Basin country. It's beautiful and gorgeous. A lot of people think uh, Nevada and the desert, they think it's ugly and barren and it's so it's not like maybe don't tell everybody that because then they'll want to go there, but <laughs> it's not it's full of a lot of beauty and um, oh, that was a great. I loved living in Nevada as a kid. We had a I had a lot of freedom um, I had two the neighbors that lived next to us that also worked on the ranch. they had two little boys and we were all homeschooled because we were so rural and so we would all do our school and then we would book it just as fast as we could and pack our lunches and get on our horses and get out and we would just be gone all day. It was, it was a great childhood. And I got bit by ticks then. Like I, we always like after brandings and stuff or in a long day, we would always have a tick check. Like there was never any, um, danger feeling about it. Like, It was just like gross like moms are like oh that's gross that's nasty let's make sure you don't have any (laughs) ticks." and um so after so after dad cowboyed for a while he was actually shoeing a horse one day and he got in a discussion with someone and the consensus was that cowboys are stupid and it pissed him off so he quit and he decided to go back to university and we ended up moving to scotland where my mom's family is from and so we he Packed us all up and we moved overseas and we did a lot of traveling while we we're um living in Europe and for that I am so incredibly thankful <laughs> was at the time it seems like normal it felt like normal you know day-to-day life when you're a kid but looking back on it it's like oh, wow that was really neat thank you mom and dad um and then we moved back to America um we lived in the Midwest taking care of my great grandpa during my high school years and there Tons of ticks, like the Ozarks. Like I remember my sister and I pulling ticks off of ourselves and like counting, like upwards of of seventeen ticks at a time, and being like, "Oh, that's disgusting," but never having any concept of what those nasty little buggers could possibly carry. <laughs> and then after I graduated high school, I moved back to northeastern Nevada, and that's when I started cowboying, and that's eventually where. I got
0: line. So, let's let's explore a couple of things. That
2: was a about, lot. Sorry, I just like barfed my no, life away. And you. it was <laughs> and it was
0: very very well done. And uh, and and I have so many questions that uh, you know that we're gonna have to walk it back a little bit. So. The first thing that I would like to talk to you about is tick checking. You said that um, when you were both in Nevada as a young child and then later in your childhood, um, you were bitten by a lot of ticks and part of your experience was tick checking. Talk to us about um, what a tick check looked like and how often you would do that or your parents would have you do that during your childhood.
2: Um, it was generally after times when we were in a different, uh, different country, like with a lot of sagebrush, um, and out all day when they knew that we were running around with like, th- especially after like a branding, um, you're touching cattle, you're touching calves and, um, they can get on you. Or we were as kids when you're a kid and running around building forts and running around in the trees or whatever, in the Oak trees. Um, so they would tell us, you know, before your shower at night or your bath, strip down. Make sure you check your armpits, your the crooks of your arms, your elbows, behind your knees. I remember them always saying, like, check behind your knees and behind your ears. Um, it wasn't necessarily always an everyday thing, but if there if we were in different country where they knew there were ticks, they would have us check.
0: Now, when you say different country, you don't mean a foreign country. Yeah, sorry,
2: I mean like. <laughs> Oh, yeah, we were riding through a different country okay. <laughs> miles now, rather than oceans.
0: <laughs> now when you were when you were working with the cattle, your concern was that the ticks would get from the cattle onto you?
2: Yes. Yes. Because okay. well, you know, looking back at it now, we know the ticks can jump. How how far can they jump? They can jump like three feet, right? Well
0: no, they can't jump. They can only walk on you, but they <laughs> they don't jump.
2: I feel like I feel like I see them as like these little bad guys <laughs> wearing like you know suits and they're like it
0: didn't attack that much. <laughs> no no t- six can't jump that's, that's,
2: <laughs> let's, let's
0: let's disavow that uh,
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay so they they toddle off the cattle onto you how's that <laughs>
0: do, do, do you recall seeing ticks on cattle either calves or, or or cows
2: um as a kid no but as an adult yeah absolutely and the horses and stuff
0: okay now when you found a tick on you or your parents found a tick on you what'd you do
2: it was just like, oh, that's disgusting. Pulled it off, smashed it, or flushed it down the toilet, and went on my way.
0: Right. So there was no, there was no having the tick check. There, there, was no having the tick tested to determine if there were any. Oh,
2: Lord, no, we germs didn't know. Never even heard of Lyme disease. Okay. Um, I think we'd heard. I think we had heard of um, Rocky Mountain fever. Rocky fever,
0: yep. Yeah.
2: But. But it wasn't still, I don't remember there ever being a feeling of fear or worry about that.
0: So you wouldn't take any steps to prophylactically protect yourself in the event that you found tick biting on you. You would just. No,
2: we're just like, that's a bug biting a human. That's disgusting. Take it off and go shower now.
0: (laughs) So just, just so that I'm clear. So the purpose of doing tick checks during your childhood was just to find the ticks and remove them from you, not to take any steps to protect you from getting sick after the tick had bitten you. Exactly. Okay, so as part of your either cowboying experience or your ranching experience, or as you're in your educational experience at anywhere, did you come to learn more about ticks and tick diseases so that you could protect yourself from these, um, you know, from these germs that could be spit into you?
2: No, not at all. Not until after I was diagnosed. I don't. I I hadn't really ever even heard of Lyme until I got diagnosed, you know, my story, like everybody else's probably is that I was tested for 101 things at some point before I was ever diagnosed. And I, and I vaguely remember there was a, um, one Lyme test, but it was the the basic run of the mill one. And, but it never went into my head. I'd never even heard of it really before.
0: Okay. So when did your symptoms that you now know to be your Lyme symptoms begin to present to you?
2: Yes. So um I moved to Nevada on my own when I was 19 and was working for a ranch and right pretty much right off the bat I moved there in February and we started calving and I had some bottle calves and these are calves whose moms either didn't take them or they weren't strong enough to suck or their moms had died and so every every day you mix up milk and you feed them right and at the beginning you really have to be hands on and help them and or some of them teach them how to suck on the bottle. And so you're touching the calves all the time. And I think what happened was I got bit, we had a couple warm days, even though it was, it was cold in spring, and we had a couple warm days, and I think it warmed up enough for a tick to crawl off one of those calves onto me. And I actually, I had the rash, I had the bullseye rash and I was, I was at a, I'd gone into town for a ranch rodeo and I had lunch with friends and my friend's mom was like, Elizabeth, what is on your chest? And I like looked down and there's this weird rash. I was like, I don't know. And she was like, that's disgusting. And I was like, you're right. It is. And then I ignored it and it faded away. (laughs) Um, so right that summer I started getting symptoms, probably within a couple of weeks, but I had no idea. My glands swelled up hugely at one point, And I almost went in to have some type of like surgery done on my teeth. Um, I was constantly getting sick, like constantly thought I had um, strep all the time, the flu all the time. And then as time progressed, my symptoms got more and more, Um, severe and I ignored a lot of them and I explained a lot of them away because I was a girl doing a physically uh, challenging job and you know you I would wake up early in the morning some days you have to be at the barn at 4 30 you don't quit until the end of the day sometimes after dark and it's like well you know it makes sense that I maybe don't feel that good because I'm working really hard um so, yeah, so my symptoms basically started right away, but I ignored them for a very long time and to my detriment. <laughs> well,
0: look we'll at get there. So let, let's talk about the bullseye rash. Um, yes, you Do you think you'd even remember that rash if it weren't for your friend's mother saying Elizabeth?
1: No,
2: not at all. Not at all. And it got misdiagnosed as um, ringworm. Finally, home. um, A doctor, family doctor in Missouri, I went home for my grandpa's funeral and I got off the plane and my mom did the same thing. And she was like, Elizabeth, that's disgusting. You know, you move, you move out of my house for like four months. And now look at you, (laughs) that sort of thing. And so she took me to this doctor and she's like, oh, you work around livestock. That's ringworm. And she gave me a topical cream to put on it. And looking back on it now, I'm like, that looks nothing like ringworm. Like, what are you talking about, lady?
0: (laughs) Well, and, and. Would it be a fair guess on my part that the topical cream she gave you included a steroid?
2: Probably, which we now know makes you feel horrible. (laughs) If you have Lyme, don't take it.
0: It suppresses your immune system and of course allows the Lyme to take off, right? Yes, sir. Excuse me. So let's talk about how these symptoms were developing and how it was affecting your life first during the period of time when you were, when you were cowboying and then when you left that job and started doing other things in life.
2: So, um, so the, the job that I really noticed, I had a camp job, which means I was with a small group of cattle. Um, I think around, it was under 300 and it, they were in their summer ground and they're up in forest um, permits and stuff. And so I lived Um, out in the middle of nowhere. I loved it. (laughs) And um, I had a dry camp, you know, no running water, no electricity. I had a generator and um, my job was to keep an eye on those cattle, keep the, keep the fences fixed, um, irrigate pasture. And um, (laughs) I had a really, I'm, I'm a workaholic. I love to work. I've had a job in some capacity since I was 15 and planning my day became very difficult. Now I didn't realize it at the time, but I knew what I needed to get up and go do. And it, it was difficult. I I've woken up early my entire life. Like my parents will tell you, even when I was like eight, nine, I was waking up at three o'clock in the morning, doing my schoolwork, reading books, building forts, doing all the things. And it, that was odd to me that it was difficult, that it was dragging so much. And, and I'm tend to be very organized and analytical and planning my day was difficult.
1: Now, I
0: what do you be- mean by that? Give us, give us some more detail. What was difficult about it and, and how were you struggling with
2: So that I a planning have, process? Yeah. So I would have like big sections of fence that I would need to go fix. It was important to fix those fences. Um, So I would need to gather fencing supplies and put them in the pickup, the work pickup and get up there. And I would need to make sure that I took enough water for me and pack a lunch and make sure I have all the fencing tools and then figure out my day to how I was going to fix that fence and when and for how long. And then when I was going to check on cows and when I was going to turn out water, I wasn't aware that any Any of that was difficult, but I knew something wasn't right because I kept messing the the structure of my days up and I was struggling getting the things done that I needed to, to the point where I know, like looking back on it, I know my boss must have thought I was just like goofing off and (laughs) partying and I, and I wasn't, I was just, you know, that process of going from A to D when you have Lyme is very difficult And, um, at that point I went to the ER several times because I thought I had, um, I was having difficulty breathing. My little sister came would come and stay with me. We're very close. So she would come and stay with me for a month or so, or a couple of weeks. And at one point she'll tell you that I was laying down and I I was asleep and I was breathing so slowly. She said at one point she like grabbed a little hand mirror, compact mirror that she had and held it up to my mouth to make sure that I was breathing. And she took me into the, to the ER. Cause I, I couldn't breathe. And we thought maybe because, um, one of the base camps, like when we went up to fix fence, there was an old house there that had been locked up and we could stay there overnight if we needed to, um, H- Hannah from, pack rats, um, thought, well, possibly I had somehow gotten that and went to the ER and they all basically laughed at me and were like, there's nothing wrong with you. Go home.
0: (laughs) Um, So between the time that you had your bullseye rash uh and the time that you were finally diagnosed with Lyme disease, how many times had you gone to doctors or hospitals, um, to try to determine what was wrong with you?
2: Oh, I have no idea. Like it's it's over 20 at least you know and I struggled too I would have gone more but I was very rural for most of this time and um getting a day off like I still needed to work (laughs) and so getting a day off all the time was was difficult and made me feel bad. I didn't want to constantly be asking for days off because I was already struggling doing my job and it wasn't fair to the rest of the crew to be a person short um yeah
0: how else were your developing symptoms impacting your life you described for us that it was impacting your job and your capacity to perform tasks that you would easily perform before that how else was was uh the symptoms or how else were the symptoms impacting your life
2: well, looking back on it now, I can see just how it impacted everything—my relationships, my, um, just who I was. I I couldn't stay awake past seven thirty at night, like I, it was physically painful to be awake. You know, I just couldn't do it, and I had troubles waking up in the morning. And something I was actually thinking about the other day is, I really love to cook. I enjoy cooking. Um, and I remember cooking dinner for my boyfriend and I at the time, and it just, it was, it was difficult. I don't think I could have pinpointed it, but timing, looking back on it now, I recognize the timing was really hard. And that was frustrating because this was something that I used to be good at and it was a struggle now. Um, going to the grocery store was difficult. I would have to pull my pickup over on the way home and go to sleep. Um, I also didn't realize back then that fluorescent lights kill me. They mess with my eyes and they trigger my vertigo. And my and once I get stressed about those things, it seems to bring on all these other symptoms. Um, so making decisions is difficult. So when you're at the grocery store trying to figure out what you need, those are all <laughs> difficult things. Um, I, I did things like forget to fill up water to take with me back to my camp. Um, hello, living in a dry, dry camp. Water's pretty important, Elizabeth. <laughs> um, uh, and, and I was starting to forget my words, uh, have troubles recalling words at that point. Didn't realize it, didn't know what was stressing me out about being around other people but it did. Um, I'm a bubbly, obnoxious human and I will talk generally to anyone, but that was really impacting my ability to keep up with my friendships or me even wanting to go socialize and not knowing why. So give us some
0: more detail. How did the challenges that you were facing from your Lyme disease impact these relationships? Did you lose friends? Did you have conflict with friends? Did you feel like you were letting friends down? What was happening?
2: Yeah, at the time, because my job was um, so rural, and I worked so much, everybody expected you um, to work hard and not see each other as much. But once I left cowboying and moved back in with my folks, then I really did notice um, friendships suffering because people think And, and, you know, God love them, like nothing on them because you don't understand until it happens to you. But people tend to think you're a flake because when I say to someone I'm tired, they it's their version of tired. My version of tired is to where it's physically painful for me to get up and get dressed. And if I did and by the time I got to where I was going to go. I have no mental capacity to carry on a conversation with someone. Um, And so, yeah, the amount of times, you know, when I, when I first moved back to California from Nevada, I used to get asked to compete in um, ranch ropings all the time. I don't anymore because the amount of times that I have had to at the last minute, because I've had a flare up, I'm so sorry. I can't show up. People think you're a flake and, um, and, and, People don't always understand that even though you're friends and you love them, you don't always feel safe going to new situations because of it's just difficult with your vision problems and your memory. Like. I know for me, I still really stress about meeting new people because when I get stressed, my word recall goes out the window. And that is just so embarrassing because you look like a normal person. (laughs) I mean, you know, normal is as normal does. Um, Some of my friends would be like, I don't know, Liz, do you look that normal? But, (laughs) you know, you look fine. And then you're struggling to find the word for lettuce for crying out loud. And they're like, is this person you know, stoned or drunk at 11 a.m., you know? So um yeah, it, it definitely and it impacted my relationship with my parents. I'm kind of jumping all over the place and I apologize. Just oh, yeah, you're doing me,
0: very you're doing very well.
2: <laughs> take me back whenever you need to, but um you know I'm a very independent type of person and I want to be able to take care of myself. And like, you know, the joke is that my first words were, I'll do it myself. <laughs> and I was raised in a family that was, you know, we're not whiners. We don't whine. Like you buck up, you be quiet, and rub some up. Dirt. yeah, you yeah, you rub some dirt on it and keep going. No one cares. And that, I mean, first of all, that ensured that I got chronic Lyme was me not wanting to whine and complain. and then, right, Let's
0: pause there. Let's pause yeah. there. So why do you believe that your sort of cowboy up philosophy uh, caused you to get chronic Lyme disease or ter- caused your chronic, your acute Lyme disease to become chronic Lyme disease?
2: Well, because I believe that if I had gone to someone who had recognized my rash or Heard about any of the myriad of other symptoms that I had, and I had started on antibiotics. Then that there was a there might have been a possibility because I was a very healthy person, very yeah, strong. Liz,
0: Liz, I think you're being hard on yourself. You went to, <laughs> you, you went to a doctor when you had your Lyme rash, and it was misdiagnosed. You went to about 19 other doctors before you were diagnosed, and no yeah. one diagnosed you. So why do you why are you blaming yourself and this sort of cowboy up philosophy that you embody as the basis for for you getting sick it sounds to me not that you failed yourself it sounds like the medical community failed you
2: well because richard i have a tendency to blame myself for everything that's why i'm working on it okay (laughs) so so let's let's talk
0: about let's 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 talk about mindset because i think that's an important that's an important place for us to go right because one, one of the things that that we see with many of our guests is we talk a lot about what it what impact Lyme is having on us physically. But now we need to do now we need to do is focus on our mindset. And what impact was this disease having on this very confident, very secure, very independent gal whose first words were, I'll do it myself. How was Lyme disease changing that identity?
2: Oh, it, it stripped me down. Um, I still very much struggle with it. It it took so much of my confidence, because, you know, one of the things just going back for a second, I had a lot of double vision and a lot of vertigo and being horseback. So like roping, when you have vertigo and double vision, it's very difficult to, to, to do those things proficiently. And I became started second guessing everything I did, because a lot of things that I was quote unquote seeing were not actually there. Or people would tell me that I had said things or done things or we talked about things that I have no memory of doing. So I I started feeling like I couldn't trust myself. When you can't trust yourself and um, you feel like you know, and that is another thing that I really love. Um, I like to work out. Always have, and that was something I loved about cowboying. Is when you get to a certain point um, physically, you just feel like you can't go anymore. You're done. You're gone, you're destroyed, but you can't stop. And you dig deep into your, your mental fortitude and you decide to keep going and you find that other gear. I love that feeling. When you feel like you can't trust yourself to do that anymore, you you do. You, you lose a lot of, or at least I lost a lot of self-confidence. And so I really started isolating. After I got diagnosed, um, I think I also clung even though I wouldn't admit it to myself, I clung to the thought that one day in the future, I would just wake up and I would be old Liz and I would be able to go back to my old life because that was everything I had always wanted and worked for as a child. And in my mind, it was just taken away and there was no way that that could be my life. Like no way. Um, It, it, Really shook everything in me because you know, before I'd been good at school i I love to read um I write, and um like Matt was mentioning, there was times where I couldn't read and have that like that's a part of my identity, I guess when I think about myself is that I am a reader I like to learn and staring at this page full of squiggles that I have understood since I was four years old, and it didn't matter how many times I read them, not being able to comprehend what that page said, that really freaked me out.
0: So Liz, when did you finally get your Lyme disease diagnosis?
2: Um, so I think it was 2009. Um, I finally had to quit cowboying. Uh, we were running uh, yearlings down off the mountain, their long, hot, hard days. And I i literally thought I was going to die. At this point, I was passing out horseback all the time. I was not doing well. And someone on the crew at the end of the day was like, rode up to me and he was like, Liz, you're blue. Are you okay? And I was like, no, I'm, I'm not okay. Like I can't, I'm breathing, but I can't breathe. Like I I'm not getting oxygen in. And I quit that night and I ended up just like randomly, I had nowhere to go. I didn't know what to do. Like my job is very physical. If I couldn't be physical, what was I going to do? So I randomly just like flew home and my parents were very sweet and ended up moving me. And like, I just moved into my parents and, um, um, that started a bunch of trying to figure out what the hell was wrong with me. And they even they'll tell you like you were being so weird and acting so different than you had your entire life the only thing we could figure was that you were drinking and doing drugs like you were hardcore partying partying and meanwhile you know I'm just like sleeping in my bed trying to figure out how to get to school we also decided well while we figure out what's wrong with you go to junior college for a while Ha! that sucked <laughs> um, yeah um so i i went to several doctors like um uc davis and several places like big respected places too and um finally yeah december somebody that went to my parents church had heard that i was struggling and she was like oh she sounds like she has Lyme disease. And this lady had had um, Lyme disease for over 20 years. And she met with me in a coffee shop and I cried the whole time from relief, which was horrible because uh, another big thing against, you know, not whining and complaining is you don't cry in public. And I cried in public, (laughs) but hearing her story and hearing her go, no, you're not crazy. That's Lyme. And she set me up with my now doctor and i Um, got blood work done and I got a, uh, what do you call it? Diagnosis when the doctor just listens to all your symptoms. I'm blanking on the word. Clinical, Yeah. Clinical. I got a clinical and blood work diagnosis.
0: So how did you feel when you were, you finally received the answer to all of the health questions that you had up to that point?
2: Oh, I was so excited. I was like, you've given me like, this is yes. This is something I can work with because everybody else, you know, I've been told, you know, Oh, your blood sugar is just messed up. You're an attention seeking brat. You need to go to a, like a psychologist and work on your issues. I was told I had MS, um, fibromyalgia, like, you know, I think us Limeys, we all very much share similarities that way that we're just they don't know what it is. So they just throw a bunch of random stuff at us. And well, and I know Lyme is called the great imitator for a reason. It mimics a lot of things. Um, but so I was just so excited because I'm very goal oriented. And I thought, well, if you give me a diagnosis and I know what this is, I will work my butt off and I'll be able to start feeling better.
0: <laughs> right, so, So the gal who always had this grit that would cowboy up, that would be able to fight through everything. She now had a plan to fight through these challenges, right?
2: Right. Yeah.
0: So let's look back for a minute uh, before Matt starts to chat with you about uh, about your 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 treatment plan and remind us of all the things you lost from the time that you first started getting sick until the time that you were diagnosed.
2: Well, um, I lost my freedom and I lost my whole lifestyle that I'd worked hard, you know, horses are so important to me I love them so much and so part of the reason I love cowboying so much is because I get to use these horses and I have an entire day to train my colts and um had a a little bit of skill of being good at that training the first 30 days on a horse makes sense to me and brings me so much joy and I couldn't do it anymore and I went from you know living on my own having my friends having this this lifestyle and feeling completed and fulfilled in my job um, and pride in my job to all of a sudden having you know sell my horse trailer my pickup isn't mine anymore moved in with my parents I can't stay awake I don't have a kitchen anymore you know my entire life was completely gone. And, and more even than that, I didn't know who I was inside. I didn't recognize Liz, you know, and it was just so, I think it would have been even more traumatic if I hadn't been so limesy at that point. But at that point, mentally, I was just like, doo, doo, doo. <laughs> you know?
0: So did the diagnosis help you with any of the things that you had lost, meaning were you now given a tool that would help you to regain some of what you lost, including your identity?
2: I, you know, I don't remember specifically thinking like, if I do this and this and this, I'll get back to this lifestyle. But I I do remember thinking this is concrete. This is proven because that, that was such a hard thing constantly being told by doctors that. the there was nothing wrong with me. And so that was, that was, um, I thought of that as a great blessing, at least having something concrete that I could work towards. And I think I did just unconsciously figure that a diagnosis would mean that there was a way to get better eventually. (laughs) And, um, it didn't necessarily work like that. Um, however, I'm much better than I was then like, oh my gosh, if you would ask me to talk to you guys five years ago, seven years ago, 10 years ago, I'd have burst into tears and run screaming out of the room.
1: <laughs> so let's talk to us more about your doctor's visit when you got clinically diagnosed and then it followed up with a blood test, which confirmed that clinical diagnosis. What was your doctor telling you to expect for your treatment and how long it would take to feel better?
2: there was a lot of, we don't know. Um, so the, my, my doctor there's actually a team. So, um, Mitch Hogart, who's a pharmacist worked with this MD, um, Dr. Johnson, who I still see and the pharmacist, his son had Lyme and he ended up passing away from it. And it just gave Mitch this passion to help people with Lyme disease. And, um, So they, um, we sent my blood work to Igenics, I believe is what it's called. And, um, that came back positive and it also came back with babesia. And then there was a lot of, well, we don't know what this will do, but we're, we're going to try it. And at that point, the mindset was a little bit, and it's all very hazy back then because I was basically a vegetable, but. Um the mindset was the stronger you treat it and the more aggressively you treat it, the better. And so <laughs> we started me off very strong and um very aggressively. And I think we um I, I don't know what the proper term is, surge, but like would do one antibiotic and then break for a little bit and then do another one. So we, oh, we cycled. Cleared, cycled. There we go. Thank you. <laughs> I need flashcards. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I don't. I don't recall they. They. I don't think they ever said. You know, if you do, if you take this med, you're going to feel better, or you're going to be able to go to school again. It was always kind of, we're going to try this and see what happens. <laughs> there was a lot of, well, uh, kind of throw stuff up in the air and oh, let's hope this works.
1: <laughs> and Liz, what was what was your reaction to that? Because your doctor and your team of doctors is basically telling you. We're gonna to try to treat you, but we have no idea what to expect. We don't know if you're gonna get better, when you're gonna get better. But good luck. Like that's sort of what, what happened. It sounds like. So, how did you respond to that?
2: Um, at first, I was like, you know what? Let's just try. I was so sick, and you know, my I'm so thankful that I have the family that I do. My mom and dad have taken such exquisite care of me, and I truly believe I would be um, dead if it wasn't for them. Um, and my mom was a big pusher and in taking care of me and me trying things. Um, at that point I was just like, so ill that I, it was all I could do to focus on anything. So she'd hand me pills and I'd take them. <laughs> um, as so in the beginning, you know, I, I really didn't think about it that much as time went on, however, it's became more and more infuriating because it's different when you're 26, as opposed to when you're in your thirties and it's not changing. And they're still saying, let's try this and see what happens. So yeah, that, that has been, especially in recent years, that was very frustrating.
1: So so Liz, I know your journey was very long from a treatment standpoint, but in the beginning, you mentioned that your team of doctors decided to cycle various antibiotics, it sounds like. And see how that worked for you. So talk to us about, do you recall what those antibiotics were and was uh, there any effect at all?
2: You know, um, well, I started herxing immediately <laughs> um, because of how aggressively we treated. And and at the time I was like, yeah, like the mindset, the harder it is, like a workout, the better, like, yes, just slay me with them. <laughs> um, now I would caution people to, you know, maybe don't do that. Um, but we did all the normal Doxycycline, doxycycline, um, azithromycin, amoxicillin. I whatever. What I, if you tell me a medicine name? I'll probably be like, "Yep, I've been on it."
1: <laughs> so let's talk to us about what you mentioned that you herxed right, which is basically you feel better before you you feel you feel worse before feel you worse, feel better. Worse, yep. Because you're killing off all this bacteria, and you basically the die off is sort of. Poisoning your system. So, for you, what did that feel like while you were cycling on these strong antibiotics? Describe for us what that was like from a symptomology standpoint.
2: Yeah. So, my Lyme presents with a lot of arthritis um, and uh, neurological Lyme symptoms. So, when I'm herxene, especially back then, uh, muscle weakness, need help to sit up in bed. Um, joints hurt so badly and they feel weak. So, walking is, is, difficult if not impossible um motor skills such as figuring out how to feed myself my mom helped feed me a lot and not being able to stay awake like sleeping huge amounts of time and and my family saying almost to the point of like being in a coma like th- very difficult to wake me up um and just all over pain so much pain, <laughs> um, muscle pain. And, and like I said, the arth- arthritis, like pain in my joints is the big one for me. Um, and vertigo as well. The, and, you know, I think I was in so much pain. I didn't notice my vision problems as much. Um, my pain on a day-to-day basis is much better now. Um, so I have noticed in recent years, I do have a lot of vision issues. Um, sometimes everything just kind of goes all fuzzy. And you're like, oh, you know, I think I'll just sit here until I can see better.
1: <laughs> so Liz, you're the third guest in a row to talk about problems with vision due to Lyme disease. And we haven't explored that deeply with a lot of our guests because it hasn't been a common theme we've heard of a lot. And I myself had had vision issues early on in my journey as well. So talk to us about, in addition to it being blurry and then your vision coming back, what that's like. Is there anything else that happens? Do you ever lose vision in one eye versus the other? Is it just blurry and it comes back? Give us a little more detail about what your vision problems are like with Lyme disease.
2: Yeah. You know, this is so interesting to me because, you know, I don't think I really even have noticed or paid attention. I'm, I'm really good at ignoring things I don't want to deal with. So if I, I'm like, I don't want to be sick, I'm just not going to pay attention to it you know, in the beginning, before I got diagnosed, I mentioned double vision. I I literally remember seeing two moons up in the sky and thinking, okay, this isn't Star Wars. I know this isn't right. There's something wrong with me. And uh, going to heal a calf one time, actually, and I should have not missed that shot. And But I was seeing two sets of calves and I didn't know which one to rope. And that is so unsettling, feeling like you're insane and crazy. Um, now I notice, um, especially if it's really bright, um, it makes it so that my vision just kind of shifts and I can't focus on anything. Everything goes blurry, and then it's like a bright light comes, and then stuff will just go away. Sometimes it's total blackness. That used to happen more. It would just like go so bright and then go black. Can't see anything. I have floaters a lot. Um, and a lot of times I notice um, that there's like weird colors, like people are lit up <laughs> behind them. Red seems to be a constant color. Um, yeah. It's very unsettling to, to not know when it's going to happen, which means that, you know, I was the type of kid that didn't really like to drive before I had Lyme. Cause I'm like, these are speeding bullets of death. These are just dangerous. I'm just going to here and ride my horses but now i really it makes me nervous because i don't know necessarily when that's going to happen and i don't always trust my um well and i definitely don't trust my uh distance judgment i run into walls all the time i'm like a walking comedian in our house if if the tv doesn't work just watch liz
1: (laughs) so i have to ask with all of these symptoms and and there had to be some sort of anxiety or fear that came along with these symptoms, not knowing when they'd pop up and how they'd impact your day-to-day life.
2: Yes. So I did go through a period um, of several years of severe anxiety. Um, I would get horrible panic attacks and, you know, something that one of the things people don't always know that don't have Lyme or don't know someone that do that does have Lyme, And are familiar with the symptoms is that sensory overload is a real thing so um someone else that is just sitting in your friend's house and visiting they're just focusing on visiting with their friend meanwhile you or i sitting there can hear the dishwasher going and the washing machine going and it feels so freaking loud and that's all you can focus on and someone's mowing the lawn outside and You know, there's so much you just, it's difficult to process all of that. And I don't know about you, but uh, sound is a huge thing where things just sound way louder than they are for the normal person. And to me, if I'm tired my sensitivity is so heightened. And there's been times I've been in public restrooms and, you know, the toilet flushes on its own and it's so loud. Like I've literally blacked out (laughs) because it hurts. Or I feel like I'm going to throw up because it's so painful. It's so loud and overwhelming. And that really does, um, really narrows you down to wanting to, to do things. And I internalized it and I didn't talk about it. Um, I didn't, ne- I didn't until this last year, really even express to my, my parents, my vision problems and looking back on it now, I'm like, why did I do that? Like I would get frustrated because people would want me to do things. But meanwhile, how are they supposed to know that I can't see anything or I'm feeling anxious because my vision isn't reliable.
1: <laughs> you're, you're, you're not alone with that. And fortunately, many of us with Lyme, including myself, have experienced all of those symptoms as well. And right. to give you hope there, there is progress. And as you can tell, you've made progress and you're getting better and you will continue to get better. Oh, but absolutely. I do want to ask you when you had all of these, these feelings of anxiety and, and, and fear because of your, your serious symptoms that affected your day-to-day life, what did you do to overcome that fear and manage that fear and anxiety?
2: Well, let me just tell you, Ru, Come here, Rue. So this is this is my little dog, Rue. My mom at the time I had at the time I had lost my dog um, in an accident, a ranching accident when I was working and I was kept going. I'm not ready to get another dog. I'm not ready to get another dog. And my mom was like, at this point, I was not able to walk. By myself at all. I like would start crying in public, just the anxiety would build up and would freak out. And I was really against taking medication because I was taking so much freaking medication all the time. I was like, I'm just tired of taking pills. Quit shoving things on me. (laughs) That hard-headedness. And so my mom really pushed me to get a dog and we went and looked at this litter puppies and there were eight puppies and I picked them all up and I picked Rue up and she was just a little tiny peanut and I was so anxious and she just instantly laid her head down on my chest and I felt better and I put her down and I picked the other ones up and she did it again and Rue was such a comfort to me in helping me manage my anxiety during that time. Um, she is a terrier. She should not be comforting. She's insane. Um, but when I'm sick. And when my anxiety ramps up, she knows before I do, and she'll just come and sit on my lap and she'll put her head on my chest. And I'm able to just kind of block out everything else that's going on with going on and focus on her and breathe with her. And that sounds so silly, but she helped me so much through those bad anxiety times and the pain.
1: Liz, it doesn't sound silly at all. And and I want to ask, do you have any other tips? Because you, you mentioned a lot of different symptoms, physical symptoms, in addition to your anxiety and fear from, from these symptoms. But with do you have any other tips for our listeners that helped you manage your physical symptoms, like the vertigo and you know all of your vision and your hearing problems and all these wide-ranging symptoms that you had?
2: Yes. So first of all, I would say learn how to communicate. If you are a Cretan like me and keep all of your emotions and things bottled up because being able to verbally express to the people that are around you, I don't feel good today. I am maybe feeling a little anxious because I can't see very good or I'm in a lot of pain. Just vocalizing that now, because that's something I do very differently now that as opposed to like 10 years ago, that eases so much of that, just vocalizing that. And I would have poo-pooed that years ago as like a new age crap list, but it really does help. As far as physical changing my diet, that helped so much. Um, you know, for me, processed foods kill me. Um if I have MSG or there's there's some preservative in foods, like I can make pancakes at home and feel fine for, you know, I know food and symptoms build up over weeks, but I'll be fine. If I have pancakes out, there is a preservative of them. I could instantly get joint pain and vertigo and tired. Um, so for me eating, um, grass-fed meat, knowing where my, where my meat comes from, um, organic vegetables, you know, trying to eat as much close to how it was made <laughs> food that really helps me um as far as pain relief goes um I, you know at one point i i was not able to walk and i was in so much pain and i went to my doctor and i was like you have to help me like i don't want to be alive anymore i can't do this you have to help me and at that point i was on vicodin 24 7 and i had no signs of being addicted to it because when you have an actual need, it's difficult for your body to get addicted to it. And um, he was like, well, I can give you medical marijuana or Oxycontin. And I just didn't want to do either of those. And so when the pain would get really bad, I read some book um, about, gosh, what is it called? I'll have to I have to look it up and email it to you guys. Cause it really helped me. He's a um, Indian from India MD and he utilizes Western and Eastern practices. And he talked about the importance of exercise. And so when the ba- the pain would get so bad, I thought I couldn't take it anymore. I'd get down on the floor and I'd stretch or um, swim in the pool and just even five minutes, even though it felt so horrible and it was difficult, just even five minutes of light sh- stretching would help my pain so much so food and exercise in, in, in careful specific amounts, not like going and doing a hit workout and destroying yourself because I have found that that just makes me feel worse. <laughs>
1: So Liz, we are firm believers and and many of our past guests have confirmed that light exercise, if possible, will help you with your pain and your symptoms. But we often get responses to that with, I am so sick, I can't even do basic, simple exercises or stretches. How would you respond to those people? Because we are firm believers like you and we wanna be able to help them and encourage them to be able to do basic stretches and techniques to help them feel better.
2: Right, yeah, so um, I can say like, I, I probably don't know exactly how they feel, but I used to be bedridden. So I, I get it. And if you can help, if you can get someone to help you um, to stretch in bed, you could, you could just stay in bed, move your pillows out of the way. And um, you can easily Google, you know, extra stretching exercises to do in bed, or you could get like a um, i uh, I'm drawing on a blank, what a, a band or something to put around your foot and your just, band. Yeah, exactly. There's all uh, a lot of ballet movements. I used to dance. I find I would do them in bed, and it it even just a little bit will help. And it hurts, and you don't want to. And this is going to be wildly unpopular. And I would have strongly resisted if anybody had told me this years ago. But I really had a victim mindset, and I was like, this just hurts. And everything has been everything that I've ever loved in life has been taken away from me, and I feel awful. Why do I also have to do the hard thing and move my body? Well, because you do. It sucks. I'm sorry. But after a little bit, when you strengthen that mental muscle of, yes, this is hard. I'm going to try it, it. You're you're providing your body. There's something positive that you can do for yourself. I, I firmly believe that it really, it really does help. And then you feel a little bit of pride too that you you can't maybe you can't feed yourself by golly, but you did something good to take care of that body that's laying in that bed.
1: And Liz, I think you hit on something really important right there. Another super important tip that many of us have the victim mentality, and then we get stuck in these negative thought patterns, and okay. then that prohibits us from actually healing and making and taking the right steps to heal. So how did you personally overcome that victim mindset that you had years ago to get to where you are today with an amazing positive attitude?
2: Well, I have, and my best friend is my little sister, and she is the most incredible, amazing human I've ever met in my entire life. And um, she has had her own path and her own set of troubles. She's um, a domestic violence survivor, and she has um, dedicated her life to helping Other survivors and (laughs) she um, Is so strong and basically, <laughs> last year she was she didn't say this exactly like this, but she was kind of like Lizzie. Are you kind of just like being a piece of shit human? <laughs> like, pardon my French, but basically, are you just allowing yourself the easy road? And I was so angry, and I was like, I read all these, like I've always read all these books on positive mindset. I believe in, I believe in being positive. I, I thought I was doing lip service though. I was saying all the things, but I don't think I was really believing it. And I was not looking inside, honestly, to how I actually was thinking. And when she said that, I was like, oh my gosh, yes, I am still in a victim mindset. I I am being mad and upset that you know, I don't get to cowboy anymore, and I can't go get a job randomly and work 12 hours a day. And having, a, a, and then I got into therapy, which sounds um, so like I, I think before I would have been like, oh, this person is like, go to therapy, great. But I had these very well ingrained patterns of thinking that was really and truly just harming myself and having to be vulnerable and brave enough to go yeah this is really difficult for me yes i am disabled i hate that for years i was like no there's nothing i'm not disabled not well yeah you are (laughs) and being able to admit that and being able to go, okay, yes, this sucks. This is difficult. Is this the life I would have chosen for myself? No. But a lot of good things have happened. I've met amazing people and I've I've had amazing experiences that I wouldn't have otherwise. And, you know, you don't get to choose the cards that you're dealt. You just choose how you play them. And I'm not going to waste my life whining and complaining about a life I could have had. That is not going to happen. And so when I was able to, to have that little shift, thanks to my sister kicking me in the butt and saying, yeah, you don't get to live the life you, you want to, but are you, are you reaching your full potential where you are now? Are you being the best human you can be now and having to go, 'Eh, yeah, no, not so much that it's amazing. The, the emotional and physical connection we have with our health for, for me, when I'm not doing well, emotionally, my hips start hurting. I'm in bed. I can't, I can barely move. And there's that mind body connection is strong and it's real. And someone like me that wants to just buck up and power through things. That was a bitter pill for me to swallow.
0: So Liz, let's talk about your, your mindset, and your identity, and sort of tease out where you were, because I'm hearing a lot of different pieces here.
2: (laughs) I was born blonde, and I'm uh, spastic, so I'm sure that's exciting for you. (laughs) So
0: so what I'm I'm wondering, when your sister used her very blunt approach to challenging you and urging you to begin to focus on your mental health issues, in addition to your physical health issues, um, was she helping you to identify an identity issue that you were having, meaning you are now identifying and sort of celebrating yourself as a victim, or was she trying to help you identify that you had these self-limiting beliefs that had been established and these self-limiting beliefs were having an impact on your ability to feel, heal both emotionally and physically.
2: Yes. I think she, the, the latter was, was pointing out that, um, I was limiting myself because at that point I was aware that my identity had been in who I'd been and it'd been a big, uh, a, a big problem because so for me, one of the ways that it really came out has been in my romantic relationships. Um, when I have dated, um, And I, I was engaged, uh, two years ago and I ended up calling it off. And for me, my romantic relationships really show where I'm not doing well, which I'm sure they do for most people, but for me, it displays physically. So if, if I'm not in a good, healthy place, my lime flares up and I, and I crash, um, I really have struggled with feeling that, um, oh gosh, I'm just going to go ahead and just be super uh, <laughs> vulnerable.
1: vulnerable
2: with you. I, I do. I really struggle feeling worthy as a friend, as in a partner to people, because I can't work. To me, that I, I still struggle. That is something I'm ongoing working with my therapist and learning that just because I don't bring a paycheck in every month, the way someone else does, doesn't mean that I don't have something to offer to other people. And yeah, being able to say that out loud is, has been one of the biggest things I think I, in the last year and a half, two years, learning to vocalize my emotions. And, and, and I think I didn't want to actually admit those things to myself, um, really impacted me physically. And so my sister saying, you know, what could you be doing? How are you how are you just letting yourself get away with things How, like not the life that you think you might have in five years? You know, those five years are made up of this day right now and tomorrow where you are right now. How could you be better now?
0: So Liz, it sounds to me that you have self-limiting beliefs that caused you to believe you are not worthy of being loved
2: totally. rather
0: than which is a very separate way of, of, uh, I think, having challenges rather than saying, hey, I'm a sick person. I identify as a sick person. I'm a victim. And this is the excuse for everything that I'm failing to do. They're two very different, I think, mindsets. And I think it's important that we distinguish the two so that you can share with our listeners how you're working on your issues which really weren't identity issues, right? You were certainly mourning the loss of the identity, but you still identify as this gritty cowboy. Yeah. The challenge is that you were also at the same time believing a number of self-limiting beliefs, including that you didn't believe you were worthy of being loved because you weren't able to work.
2: Uh, yeah, hundred percent. You hit the nail on the head. Yeah. Are you sure you're an attorney? You're Sure, not a therapist. Like. <laughs> really yeah you hit the nail on the head
0: so share with us how you and your therapist are now working on you helping to understand how you are worthy of being loved and that you are someone who would be a wonderful partner in a relationship
2: (laughs) um you know one of the things is i am one of the things that's hard for me is because i'm so independent i struggle with living with my parents even though they're my best friends. It's hard when you're 30 and you're meeting new people and they ask you what you do and where you live. And I just, in the past, I like, I clog up, but I don't know what to say. And I freak out. And um, so one of the things that I'm working with my therapist is, is learning just how to talk about it. For me, that's difficult. I have kept a lot of it private because I don't ever want People to think that I'm complaining. And you know, I think what you could also say is that I cared way too much what people think about me. I don't want them to think that I'm whining I don't want them to think that I think I'm a victim. And I don't want them to think that I'm just trying to skate by in life. Okay, well, Elizabeth, you need to quit caring so much about what people think about you and just go on with your life. <laughs> um and a big part of Can we
0: pause there for a second though, Liz? Yes, sir. Because, yes, sir. because you know, part of part of suffering from PTSD. Is that you are going to be in the fight or flight, or um, you're you're going to you're going to uh, be frozen, or you're you're going to you're going to faint? And one of the things we just recently learned about is fawning, right? That it's a fifth F from somebody who's in fight or flight, where you're always trying to be what everybody wants you to be, and you're fawning over them, and you're trying to you know so. So we, we learned a couple of weeks ago in, in, a, in a, an interview that we did with a brilliant young psychologist who, um, I'm sorry, a, a social worker who's a psychotherapist um, who, who's been on her own Lyme disease journey, that fawning is one of the symptoms of PTSD that we have to be aware of so that we can begin to discuss that with our therapist, so we can overcome that challenge. So do you think perhaps one of the reasons why you care so much about everyone else is because you're really suffering from PTSD and fawning over other people?
2: Uh, do you just like, to- I had no idea. Yes, I could totally see that. That could be absolutely a thing. You know, it's, it's interesting sometimes when I go back, um, so my doctor lives um, hours and hours away from me. And so when I go back up there, I really struggle not. Um, I, I have to mentally prepare myself. Otherwise I will crash hundred percent. And it's like going back and seeing physically the places where I got my diagnosis and where it was so sick. Like, Oh, I used to not be able to walk when we went in there. Oh, I remember getting my pick line there. It's yes, absolutely. I could. Um, that's interesting. I'm going to write that down and have to research that, bring that up with my, with my gal, because I could a hundred percent see that being real and true. Absolutely.
0: So talk to us about what your vision is for how your therapist is going to help you. And 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 what I'm really excited about as you're as you're sharing this with us in in a very beautiful and vulnerable way is is you're, is you're talking about how this therapist is helping you to move forward, not just to look back at what's happened in the right. past, but your therapist is essentially coaching you so that you can become emotionally healthy in the future. So talk about that um, that sort of coaching aspect that this therapist is using to help you overcome these challenges.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the big ones is helping me to be independent in ways that I can be independent. And that was directly involved with going, hmm, I am disabled. I did not want to, I I did not like that word. I wanted to be like, well, but one day this is going to be able to change. And so being able to admit that to myself. And then, so one of the things that we're doing is I'm working on um, putting in for disability and that would be, that'll be a way in the future for me to be more financially independent and um we do a lot of work with checking in with uh, a mind-body connection and so when i i tend to get upset and store things and the anxiety comes and i brace up (laughs) and hold my breath like a like a young horse we do a lot she's teaching me that when those things come when those moments come to to take a moment and to do deep breathing, which sounds so fruity. I know, like my dad is a military brat kid, like I, all of this stuff. But if I had heard years ago, but like, oh my gosh, this girl, but it works and it has helped. And learning to, you know, another thing that I did, I joined, I I participated in a nine-week therapy group therapy session with um it was it was a small group just for women and for women who have chronic pain and chronic illnesses and i had kept myself very much removed before this with joining sick people things because first of all i didn't want to identify as that way right and second of all i found them to be very negative and they just rehashed constantly how awful their life was and i was like i already know how awful my life is i don't want to talk about it (laughs) um But that group therapy um, process over nine weeks was so huge for me. I believe in starting to to move forward because I learned that the things that I felt and the things that I experienced with my body and doctors was not individual to me. It is very common and helped me feel part of... um, will feel part of a group and feel seen and that is when i started learning how to vocalize. Yes, i am sick. Yes, i have needs that are different than than the normal 30 33 year old. That does not make me needy. Have yeah, being able to 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 learn myself and then to be able to vocalize that having needs and being needy are two different things. Um so there's been a lot of um yeah, just simply vocalization, Richard, which sounds stupid. <laughs> but for me, like being able to say things out loud takes a lot of the power away, I believe.
0: You yeah, see, and, and that's why I, I don't think it, I have to challenge you on that. I don't think it sounds stupid at all. I think it's exactly what you described. You take the power away once you articulate it. And it also puts you in a position where you can begin to advocate for yourself advocate and for let yourself. people know what you need, right? Yes. Because people with Lyme disease, are in most cases unique in the community and that people don't know exactly what your needs are. And part of that is because you know, Lyme presents with so, many, with so much diversity, right? So I think in order to be, in order to be um, treated fairly by other people and to treat other people fairly, it's incumbent upon people with Lyme disease to advocate for themselves and tell us what they need and why they need it. And when they need it so that what that does is it takes away your expectations about how we should be behaving because you're telling us and we can then treat you the way you expect to be the way you're asking to be treated. Right. So we we always have to we also have to exchange expectation for self-advocacy so that everyone can be in healthy relationships.
2: Yes, sir. Oh, my goodness. Yes, absolutely. And that is something. Um, we've also been working on is I have so many resentments like from things in my childhood and and things I held on to. And resentment is just inflammation in your body and it does no good for you or the person you're resentful towards. And I didn't even realize how non-communicative I really was. And I had a I, I could suggest to people that are have Lyme, you know, My, my mom is my caretaker when I'm ill and, and, you know, when you're together all the time, there's a lot of things that happen. And we went to a therapist as a family and talked about, you know, like, what are your boundaries now for living? What are, what are the things that like, we don't understand? There's so much that they didn't understand even after eight, 10 years of living with me and seeing me writhing in pain, like, because I simply did not communicate to them what i needed in in my own twisted self self-centered victim mindset i just thought they should have figured it out <laughs> well, well, well,
0: well let me challenge you on that for a second right because <laughs> i i don't think it was self-centered and i don't think it was twisted <laughs> i think it was you holding on to your former identity as the cowboy right so the cowboy grits through everything the cowboy fights through everything so the cowboy doesn't allow anyone to know that she's not feeling well and because you were holding on to that identity You weren't communicating your needs to the people who loved you and wanted to help you. So that's not being selfish or self-centered. That's being someone who had a very powerful identity that she now has to let go of. And, And I can see that you're doing that. What I'm a little anxious about, however, is that you make sure you replace the old cowboy identity with a new healthy identity and not with the identity that you're most concerned about, which is the victim's identity. And that that's what makes me concerned about some of the group activities where you're with a lot of other people who are sort of saying the same things, right. and they're holding on to their, they're holding on to the false belief pattern that they're a victim. And, and, and it's, and and the reason they're, they're now answering the question about why they're not worthy of love is that they have this disease. So we have to, you know, I just want to, urge you yes. to be really cautious to make sure that when you go through this process of replacing the old identity that you were holding on to, that you don't replace it with an unhealthy identity, which will then of course make it even more difficult
2: for you to hear <laughs> even more issues further down the road. No, right. thank you so much for that. I really appreciate that. I could see and I see in the past how I had slipped into that. And it and I think it's something that um, I will have to constantly check myself and check in with myself that are you are are you think that you're worthy of love and kindness from your friends and families and romantic relationships just because of what you produce no that's that's not how that works and it's interesting how we are so hard on ourselves because I would never feel that way about anybody else any of the people that I love of course I don't care what they do
0: (laughs) right but but part of that is because our mind is, is a dated um, set of software that is constantly triggering, you know, because of our, because of our experience, constantly uh, triggering our survival software, right? And because it's triggering our survival software, and we're now looking for danger, which may or may not exist, we then start to have these, these thoughts,
2: right? Oh, yes, I can tell you've been to therapy too. Yes. And... (laughs) and creating the new the new pathways it's amazing to me um talking with my therapist about how um our brain will do things in order to protect us and it it protected us at that moment but continually doing that is not actually good for us it's actually hurting us in the in the long run and so putting forth the effort and it's hard like for me just Communicating, like I'm a woman, I should know how to communicate, but it's difficult for me. My first instinct, anytime there's conflict, or if I'm like anything, even let's say with my sister, and I don't feel well, and there's miscommunication, my first instinct is because it feels safe is to soul up and stop talking. And it doesn't matter whatever makes you happy. I, I'm fine. I'm fine. I don't need to talk about it. Well, that just ends up making me feel worse. And it's difficult for me to learn to center myself, breathe, stay present and talk about what just happened. And it's really hard. And especially the first couple of times I was like, this is not worth it. This, I don't care what anybody says, how much better I'm going to be. This is not worth it. It's always worth it. It's, it's always been worth it. It has been difficult and I have cried and felt uncomfortable and hated it. And it has been worth it and it gets easier the more you do it because the brain is plastic and it picks up good things. It
0: does. So, so <laughs> what, so what we're going to urge you to do is replace your old identity, which is a really beautiful and powerful and admirable identity with another beautiful and powerful identity is one of the things that Matt and I have been working on and we call it the line boss. Okay. We want you to be a line boss. We want you to be someone line. who owns her lime who's who's going to defeat the suffering that she's that she's uh that she's been caused by Lyme who's going to self-advocate and who's going to defeat this and believe she's going to defeat this you are not a victim you are somebody who has Lyme disease and who's going to defeat this by advocating for herself what do you think about
2: that right here fist pump hey nobody told me that this was like gonna be like a mini therapy empowerment session here for me i love this this should have come with a warning label
0: (laughs) we uh matt and i were excited about interviewing you because you're one of the first guests that said hey and this is in your pre you know your pre-interview um questionnaire you said you must deal with your emotional healing at the same time you're dealing with your physical healing. And we all sort of get obsessed with how we're going to stop this disease from attacking us. But what we're not recognizing is that if we don't have the proper mindset and we're not engaging in activities that will give us emotional fitness at the same time, the likelihood of us succeeding in overcoming the physical illness is very small, right? We need to do both. Uh, And, and I'll let Matt start asking some questions because he and I debate this all the time about what is more important. And quite frankly, it's, I've come to the conclusion that emotional healing is more important and emotional fitness is more important. And I'm interested in your perspective on that. And then I'll let Matt um, ask you his questions.
2: Yeah, no. Okay. So this is good. This is good practice for me to be vulnerable and communicate. I love it. Um, I think that I had to, you know, hit, my version of rock bottom, which was emotional. And I saw proof that my emotions were very much related to my health early on and I didn't like it. And I'll tell you why I was dating um, a cowboy and I was in my early twenties and he was wonderful and lovely. And I thought we were going to be together forever. And then he randomly dumped me and I was just like, I was so shocked. And I, cr- well, I was, I had just gotten a pick line in and I was treating. And so I was sick anyway. And then I really crashed. I mean, I crashed hard and my parent, like everybody noticed it. They were like, he broke up with you and now you're not doing well. And I was like, okay, first of all, I am not the type of woman to be affected by stuff. Like, da, 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 don't you put that on me. And in my head, I was like, ah, oh, crap. Right. And then I was like, so if I just (laughs) shut all my feelings off, that won't ever be an issue. And, you know, for years, I thought he broke up with me because I was sick and we're friends. We've we've stayed friends for um, well, since we've since we dated and um, we were talking the other day, actually, and we were talking about when we when he broke up with me and. I mentioned something. He was like, no, I, I, that was never, it never bothered me that you had Lyme. I just, I always wanted to make sure that you didn't feel left out on the things that we did on the ranch. Cause I knew that you would buck up. And then it was hard on you physically, but like, no, I, I was just young and needed to go experience life and do these things. It had nothing to do with your health. And then for me, that was such a <gasps> aha moment. And, um, and then I was, it kind of helped me go, okay, yeah, my emotions are connected to my, my physical. And, you know, when I was engaged um, a couple of years ago, I was in a really unhealthy relationship. It was emotionally not okay. And it was ended up being very controlling. And I didn't want to admit that. And I got sicker and sicker and sicker the more, the longer we stayed together and we were together for three and a half years. And I just, uh, to the point where I hadn't been that sick since I'd first gotten diagnosed. And I think I had to, I think I had to go through that. It was a really horrible time period. Um, But when I called things off and I stepped away from that relationship, almost immediately my joint pain went away almost immediately. And I started getting healthier and healthier and being able to do more things. And I, I, yeah, I think our emotions for me, maybe it's different for other people, but for me, my emotional health, I, I I, don't think I would be where I am physically unless I had started taking the steps to heal me emotionally and spiritually.
1: So Liz, let's go back to the time when in your life, when you were treating and you first got diagnosed, this was a seven year window that you were treating on and off aggressively your Lyme disease. And yes. for the last five years, you've been taking a break and you're now you're considering go, starting up some treatment again. But talk mm-hmm. to us about that first seven year window. What other treatments did you do besides cycling antibiotics, if any?
2: Oh, yes. So I did a lot of things. Um, I did a uh, hot, t- hot, hot bleh, pardon my French, hot tub treatments. Um, which are miserable, but I saw a big change. Um, like I mentioned before, I have uh, neurological Lyme. So distance reading, you know, word comprehension, that's all big issues for me. And when I started the hot tub treatments, I had a lot of difficulty just even talking. Like we have this joke that Eat to boots because I went to say something one time and it just came out sounding like this weird star Wars robot. <laughs> and we saw, or I saw a big difference in that, uh, my comprehension ability after now I will say they're miserable because you're in a hot tub. So we, my parents were very sweet and they bought a hot tub and we put it in the backyard. And once a day I would get in and submerge up to my neck and have a, a thermometer in my mouth and get my core temp, I think up to 101 and try and keep it there for as long as I could. And like, I passed out all the time and threw up and you just feel terrible, but it, it really did help. It, it really did help. It, it helped me a lot. Um, and, and because, you know, what, lime can't live in hot environments, which is why we're always freezing cold. People are always like, it's, it's 80 degrees outside. Why are you shivering? Well, because to me, it doesn't feel that hot. <laughs> um, so I did the hot tub treatments. I also did hyperbaric treatments for a long time. Um, I got uh, an IV, a PIC line put in on two separate occasions. Um, I store my stress in my stomach and, um, if I've in pain or when I'm not doing well, um, I just tend to puke a lot. <laughs> and so the, all the oral, um, antibiotics that I was taking, I was just getting rid of them. So I got an IV and then I started doing the hyperbaric chamber and I think I did it, um, for 30 days at a time. Maybe the first time I did 60 days, um, for two hour dives, five days a week. And, um, you know, like everything treatments, it's, it's hard to treat when you don't feel good, when you're in the midst of it, it's difficult. Um, it makes you more tired and it causes more pain, but we did, I did see a big difference in my vertigo word comprehension and my joint pain after, after the hyperbaric chamber. Um, yeah. Yeah.
1: And Liz, do you feel that the, the hot tub therapy helped you as well in the same regard that the hyperbaric oxygen state oxygen oh, chamber did as well?
2: Absolutely. And I said like I have a lot of people that will um will write me on Instagram and ask about Lyme. And I always suggest that because it I really truly believe that it did help me so much.
1: So really it was it was oral antibiotics, IV antibiotics, hyperbaric oxygen, hyperbaric oxygen chamber, which I can't say today. And, uh, <laughs> I jinxed you it was I me. <laughs> and um your hot tub therapy. Was there anything else you did over the seven-year window uh that you wanted that you can describe for our listeners?
2: Um I did a lot of I, I feel like I did a bazillion different things. Um I did a lot of things looking for pain relief um because my joint pain was so strong. So I don't know if it was necessarily necessarily a cure um or treatment plan wise, but I did Bowen therapy for a long time which is really weird. Like you basically go in and they do these little tiny half circle movements on your body. And you're like, that does nothing, but it, it helped me pain wise. Um, you know, I also, I just remembered, I did do a brief, um, bout with a Chinese medicine doctor situation. Um, I don't, I, you know, I don't even remember what I took. I, I do know that I took artemisinin and cat's claw and we saw, um, changes from that. Those really, those really helped me. And, you know, something else too. treating my Babesia, we haven't really talked about how the, um, co-infection goes hand in hand with your actual Lyme. And, um, you re- in my experience, you can't really get over one until you're working on the other. And so a lot of my Lyme symptoms helped when I treated, I think I used Mepron um for my Babesia. Um but yeah, food, like diet, exercise, saunas, dry saunas, infrared saunas. Um
1: did the saunas the- help you?
2: It depends on my mental condition and how I am. Um, When I was in, when I was engaged and I was not doing well, um, I started trying to do infrared sauna again and it would just, I would feel worse. It would just make me feel more tired. Now I feel fantastic. It's good, it helps. Um, I mean, I feel that it does. Um, So for me, it's very dependent upon how i'm doing
1: (laughs) so i'm gonna ask you a pretty hard question here liz if you look back in that seven year window yeah what tip hack recommendation can you give to our listeners who are in the throes of lyme and treating it aggressively that can either help them heal or even help them manage the symptoms while treating
2: get a therapist and deal with your food issues and and move your body because for, for me, not being able to express how traumatic the whole thing was of getting sick, if, if I had like looking, like I believe that everything happens for a reason, okay? And I, I don't regret my story at all. But if I could go back and change it, learning how to access how I was feeling and what was going on with me and being able to ex- express that to people and, and the fear of what people would think of me with my quote unquote weird symptoms that would have saved me so much pain. And also, I mean, food, we don't, we don't, I, I go through periods, like I'm a foodie and I like to go out occasionally and have some margaritas. And I love to eat a pizza. You've never shown me a pizza that I don't like. However, if I eat a pizza every single day and drink a whole pitcher of margarita. I'm not going to feel so good. And sometimes that just really pisses me off that I was not like every other 25 year old and I couldn't just go out there and party like everybody else. But I can't. I mean I can but I'll feel like you know crap for <laughs> so getting a handle on your relationship with food and and making sure you are giving your body healthy good food that's not fighting the crap that you're feeding it as well as your lime that was huge for me.
1: And Liz, I want to ask you a follow-up on that because we have seen many people that we've interviewed and also many people just in the community who start to feel better and make progress and they lax up their diet. They stay up late, they drink horrible foods, they drink alcohol, and then they have a crash. So clearly you've recognized that you should not be doing that because you want to continue to heal and make positive direction instead of going backwards. So What advice would you give to those who think that as they start to feel better, they can loosen up their diet and start to eat things that they know are not good for them and that they know will create inflammation and make them feel worse? Well, you're
2: probably just going to have to learn it the hard way. I mean, I did because for me, it felt like every part of my life was um, so controlled and it felt impacted by and, and, you know, and my darling family would see these things easily and would would see the things and the cause and the effect. And I wasn't always willing to. And then, so they would say things and I'd be like, oh my gosh, I'm an adult. And you're telling me, don't eat this. Like, oh my gosh, leave me alone. I'm going to eat whatever I want. <laughs> um, so learning that, okay, so I could have, you know, I could, I could go to IHOP with my friends and order a stack of pancakes. Sure you can, but is it really worth it? I, um, I don't really think there's anything I can say or anybody else can say to learn that until you're willing to learn it yourself. And sometimes experience is a rough, <laughs> the rough task master, but it's the way to learn.
1: So you had this up and down journey for, for the seven years. And at the end, you made a decision to stop treating. So talk to us oh, yeah. about where your health was at that point when you stopped treating and why you made that decision.
2: Well, I was ignorant <laughs> and I decided I'm done having Lyme. That's it. I've decided I no longer have it. I, I think I had taken a, um, another Lyme test just for giggles and grins. And, you know, I think it came back. Um, what do you call it? False positive or whatever. Inconclusive. And I was like, see, I don't have Lyme. I've taken antibiotics for seven years. I'm going to go start 100 colts for a dispersal sale. And uh forget you guys. <laughs> well, yeah, that lasted like 3 weeks and I crashed so hard and my little sister had to fly out to where I was working and come pack me up and I had to go home with my tail between my legs again and admit that yeah, I do have Lyme. I you know, I just I was so over I I found um a schedule the other day. Um, we had schedules of all the medicines that I was taking every day and I was just so over taking pills and that being my life and you know I mentioned before that I've always read literature for like um, sports literature and positive thinking and mindset and I'd read this book on the power of your will and they gave an example of this guy that had cancer and they gave him like you're not gonna live and he put his mind to it and he lived and he cured himself and I was like I'm gonna do this I'm just going to try as hard as I can and do it. Like, yeah, see, even grit your teeth (laughs) and bear down. And that just, um, yeah, just pure ignorance, I guess, um, Matt, like I just decided I'm over it. And it just really, it was a painful learning experience for me.
1: (laughs) How were you feeling when you stopped before you left and then had your crash? Were you feeling better from the treatment that you received?
2: You know, I was feeling better compared to like, you know, I could walk. I could. I was feeling more comfortable driving. Um, looking back at it now, I'm so much better now than I was. then. to me, it's laughable that I would even think that in my head, let alone say it out loud. Um, but you know, I could. The pain was less, so I could manage it. It was still, it was still there, and I obviously my decision making was not fantastic. Um, And I wasn't, and I was still so worried about what other people thought Um, the job. I wasn't able to say, Hey, I need to be able to take this and this day off. I can't work this much for here, or I just wanted to prove that I could. So I did as much as I could, which helped me crash even more. Oh, and funnily enough, um, I think uh, Richard, weren't you saying when you got bit by a tick, your physical reaction to seeing it? you just physically freaked out. I, uh, found a tick on me and I, oh, wow. It was like the floor fell out of my feet. I, I couldn't breathe. I like, I think like my vision completely disappeared for a second. I was scared to touch it because uh, in my mind, it's like, even, even the saliva I can, which, you know, it had already bit me like, calm down Liz. But yeah, I started shaking. I had to, I was, I was getting ready to get into the shower and I just like had to sit down on the floor and because I was going to fall down.
1: Was the tick um, biting you or was it just crawling on you?
2: It had bit me. I pulled it off. I kept it.
1: <laughs> and <I> kept it. <laughs> what, once you panicked and once you got, you know, through that, did you do anything? Did you follow up with the doctor? What were your steps taken for that tick bite, if any?
2: Yep. So we called the doctor. Well, and I called my mom and I, I remember I was so scared to tell her because, you know, she's, she had both feet firmly rooted in reality. She's like, what are you doing? Yes, you do have Lyme. You're going to go start a hundred horses in the summertime. You can't do that. I mean, she didn't really actually say those things, but I know she was thinking them. <laughs> I was so scared to tell her that I've been bit by another tick and she was so fantastic. And we um got hold of my doctor and had, um, a prescription sent over to the pharmacy near me and went and picked up, I think it was azith- azithromycin, I think. So it started with an A, amoxicillin or zith something. And I did a, um, a treatment of, I, uh, I think, 30 days, just to be careful, um, and paid attention to if there were any rashes. And um, But I crashed several weeks after that. And I don't think it was from... You know that they were all old symptoms, and I'd stress myself out working hours and um, you know, my <laughs> my reaction times were and my confidence in myself was very low and um, I got bucked off hard a couple times. and that is when I learned um, too that physical uh, quote unquote, I guess trauma, if you want to call it, um, that triggers Lyme symptoms in me. So, now when I go visit friends and they're like hey do you want to ride do you want to come to a brand I'm like yes do you have a broke horse because I'm doing good and if I get in a wreck or if I get bucked off I crash not so much you know because I'm so well my sister jokes now that like Elizabeth you are so delicate like (laughs) yes yes I am
1: So let's talk to us more. This was this was five years ago, I believe, when you when you left, stopped treated, stopped treatment, and had your crash. Did you keep that mentality of I'm just gonna I'm just gonna fight through this and I, mind over matter, and I'm just gonna put everything else aside? Or you know walk us through the last five years and what happened from that point forward.
2: The the last five years, you know, I was um, I was still trying to go to college, and I would invariably sign up. For classes when I was doing well. So I'd be like, I'm feeling great. I can't imagine feeling bad. I'm just going to go forward like this. And then, so instead of just doing one or two classes at a time, I would do three to four, like, which, you know, isn't a big deal for other people. And it shouldn't be for me when I'm not sick, but I get stressed and then I would crash and have to have medical withdrawal from the classes. And, um, I would kind of dart back, go back and forth, swing wildly between. Um, pushing, just trying to push through it and also being like, this sucks. I'm never going to get better. And, um, I just basically gave up.
1: Did Which, you, you, I'm sorry, Liz.
2: Oh no, you're fine. Which is when I got into my not great relationship and everything went worse from there down. That was towards my rock bottom that I had to, (laughs) had to hit. And, and I think because my emotional, um, place was so weak and not good then that I, you know, I tried to treat a couple times, like maybe twice. And we started me on like not even half a dose of, um, amoxicillin, like every other day and within two days in bed, so that was more unwanted proof that it's all connected.
1: <laughs> but did you stop? So you, tr- you mentioned that over the past five years, you tried twice to treat and within the first few days, you were sick. Did yeah. you stop because you wanted to continue on with your life and not go through with the full dose?
2: I did. Yeah, I decided, you know, I, I'm not healthy and I'm not able to live a life like everybody else, but it's better than it is when i'm just laying in bed and i'm racked with pain and i can't do anything so i i emotionally i'm just going to choose not to treat right now just to have a little bit better quality of life yes exactly i Does did sound- choose to-
1: It sounds like, you know, that you knew that you had Lyme and Babesia still, but you made some major gains over that, that seven year window. And you were just saying, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to live with this, even though I've only, I've only improved, you know, maybe half of what I could, you just accepted that and tried to keep pushing on and kept having crash after crash after crash. And it sounds like now you're exploring additional treatment to continue on and push your healing journey to the max and get into remission.
2: Yeah, that's that's one of the reasons, too, for choosing to like work on who I am as a person, because I know that the stronger I am emotionally and the better I'm able to handle hard things that come my way, my body's able to physically do it, because I don't know about you guys, but whenever um, if you if you guys have flare ups especially when it goes to my joint pain and stuff i have this brief moment of panic where i'm like oh, i don't want to go back there i don't want to go back there i don't want to go back there you know like just instant fear and so me learning how to go through that and and get stronger at knowing okay this is this is a moment in time it will get better it's okay yes um, there are other treatment things i'm or other treatments i'm wanting to explore and try and you know that old devil angel on your shoulder thing. It's hard for me. I don't know if other people, um, experience this, but for me, it's hard because people that love you and a little bit of yourself, like have this hope that this is going to be the treatment that makes you better. And then even though you tell yourself, you're not going to hope you kind of do. And then it, you know, you're, you're not the same person that you were 12 years ago and it doesn't always go through. And there's that, disappointment. So me learning how to handle, um, treating and the mental game for that, for me, I don't know about you guys, or if maybe I'm just like, Oh,
1: no, no, I for sure relate to that. Do you? Yes.
2: Yeah. So how do you, how do you deal with that when you're treating?
1: You know, I, I lean on my faith a lot. Um, I don't really share this often, but I, you know, I, without my faith, I wouldn't, I don't know how I would have gotten through my journey. Um, so I I lean on my faith and, and pray a lot when I'm, when I'm really struggling with my health.
2: Yeah, that's,
0: yeah, that's amazing. So, Liz, I, I think one of the things I'd recommend is rather than focusing on the outcome, you should focus on, uh, you should come up with a model and determine whether the model is working for you. And if the model doesn't work for you, then you find another model and then you find another model and you find another model. But if you if you focus on the outcome and your inability to achieve the outcome, then of course, you're always going to be hard on yourself and critical on yourself uh, of yourself. So you certainly should be setting remission as the outcome that you're seeking, but then you need to focus on coming up with a model that you're going to use to determine whether or not it's going to work. And what I really like about what you just said was when the antibiotics were not working for you, you stopped them. And I think that's healthy if you're stopping them because the signal that you're getting from your body is that it's not working. But then what you have to do is you have to pivot over to the next, pivot. To the next, pro- to the next protocol. Maybe, for example, you would look into you know, Dr. Rawls and his herbal protocols and the tools that he offers and see how they work for you. But as part of looking for these models, what, what you'd want to do is determine what the side effects are going to be. So you can expect the side effects and then how you should be dealing with the side effects. So for example, if you're using antibiotics and it's causing you to herx, and there are some tools available to you to deal with the herxing, then maybe that's something you'll continue to do because you understand what the challenges are. If it turns out that you've been taking antibiotics for too long and your body just can't manage the antibiotics, well, then maybe you should be looking for another set of tools. So my recommendation is that the way you deal with this is after you set the outcome, stop focusing on the outcome, because that's going to cause you to, to, to feel, too much pressure and you should be looking for models uh, that you'll be able to use and pivot from model to model to model based on the feedback you're getting from your both how you're physically feeling and and the emotional signals that you're receiving
2: yeah oh my gosh you're brilliant you should like have a podcast or something that's a great idea no seriously why didn't I think of that like yeah don't focus on the outcome when you're busy learning something new, or like, okay, so I like to fish. When you're fishing, you're not focusing on what it's going to be like to catch the fish. You're, f- you're focusing on your cast and where your bait's going and all of that. Oh my gosh, you just helped me so much. That's brilliant. I'm going to do that.
0: So I, re- I want to recommend to you and to our listeners um, a great book written by an author named Tim Howley entitled The Inner Game of Tennis. And he spends a lot oh. of time talking yeah. about talking about outcome versus, uh, versus, um, you know, uh, models for, uh, models for healing. And of course he, he wrote this book in the context of athletics, but it actually applies to everything that we want to do in life.
2: Yeah. You know, I remember my dad, um, reading that and talking about it. Absolutely. I will have to go back and revisit that.
0: So it Liz- I- I'm sorry. I also want to recommend to you and our listeners a brilliant podcast that was done. I think it was a six or seven episode podcast done by Michael Lewis entitled uh, Against the Rules. And it's actually season two. And he spends a lot of time talking about coaching and this process of establishing outcomes, looking for models, pivoting from models without having any judgment in in this process. So, um, you know, Michael Lewis is actually... uh, a big fan of Tim Howey in the end of game of tennis. And he actually developed a podcast around it. So there may be two resources that you may want to look into. And our listeners may want to uh, look into as well.
2: Absolutely. I will do that. Okay. So <laughs> I'm such a dork. Has anybody seen friends, you know, the episode yeah. where they're moving the, every time you say pivot, that's all pivot! I can think about is Ross screaming. pivot. <laughs> pivot! So that's what I'm going to do now. I'm going to like call up that image for treating it. I'm just going to be like, pivot, Liz.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> Oh so we'll now we'll now
0: call it the friends framework. Yes, yeah.
2: <laughs> yes, I love that. pat that and put your name on that.
1: So, I have one final question for you, Liz, before uh, Rich takes you on on the the tail end part of your journey. Yes, and sir. even though you're talking about starting up treatment again, you clearly have made some major progress in your healing journey. So, give us an assessment of how you're feeling today with your health and where you see yourself going in the future.
2: Um Okay, so from where I am today, when I just look back just even three years ago, I, I feel like I'm a totally um, different person. And uh, you know, I think I have a lot of the uh, the basics of my symptoms are, this, are the same that they were in the beginning, but the severity is, is not there. And my ability to, to handle them, and cope with them and my ability to know what to do to make myself more comfortable and to not completely crash. My ability to honestly look at myself and self-assess is better and how to help myself through those um, time periods or those those periods of when I'm more sick, more likely to crash. Um, Yeah, so sorry, I kind of lost my train of thought there. (laughs)
0: So let's, let's, let's follow up on that. And let's talk about what's been beautiful about this journey. What parts of this journey would you not give back, even if you could?
2: Oh, the, the people that I've met along the way. Um, my sister is a, um, a musician and a singer. And through I traveled with her for a little bit. And through a lot of her career, I've come into contact with so many people who are hurting and have their own stories and their own similarities and a lot of them with Lyme. And the amount of people with grace and resilient spirits that I have met who have impacted me and my decision to get up another day and to try, I I wouldn't change wouldn't change that for the world. And you know, this is something also too, that I probably wouldn't have admitted to myself within several years ago, but I loved cowboying so much. And, um, I, I was good enough with my horses. I don't think I would have ever stopped and lime stripping that away forced me to look into different parts of myself. And I like to write always, I always did was a writer before, but Lyme taking that physical part away from me a little bit has forced me to focus on this other part of me. And I I think a part of my story in the future will be helping people through my writing. And I don't think I would have been brave enough to explore that if I hadn't had Lyme. And I can be like, I'm hard headed and I can be very judgmental and be like, well, why don't you just try harder? And having Lyme has really forced me to go, okay, yeah, you're human and have a little bit more compassion for other people and their struggles. And as much as it sucks, I really wouldn't change it.
0: (laughs) And, and more, more compassion for yourself in the future. You as well.
2: Yes, absolutely. You keep bringing me around to that. sir. yes, yes, that as well, much, much more grace, much more grace for myself.
0: So let's uh, let's, talk about the last thing we always talk about on our podcast. And that is uh, what would you do if your dad came walking into your room and he had a tick biting him on his arm so that he could avoid going on a chronic Lyme disease journey?
2: Okay. Well, first I would jump up and down and scream and cuss a lot because I'm neurotic and that's what I would do. And then I would, uh, we would remove it safely and we would put it in a plastic baggie with a damp piece of cotton wool and we would date it. And, um, I I would send I would send the ticket to get tested right away just for my own peace of mind, and um, I would suggest him getting on antibiotics immediately, whether he's showing symptoms or not. I know a lot of people are like, oh, if you if you come up sick within you know ten to thirty days, then start treatment. You might as well just do treatment now. Why not? It's not going to hurt anything, and I would. Um, suggest that he remove as much stress as possible from his life and to start figuring out a way how to handle the stress that you can't get rid of because we're humans we live in a modern world we all have stress you're gonna have to deal with it somehow learn how to handle that stress and get your get eating good healthy food and get plenty of rest you know I didn't say this before but there is a definite I can feel a definite um um, reaction to my pain and my ability to, to, to shove away crashes when I have less than seven hours sleep and good, healthy sleep is I think so important for healing and fighting off that possible infection. So that's what I would say.
0: <laughs> Thank you for listening to the tick bootcamp interview with our guest, Elizabeth Brannan. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Elizabeth Brannan and her Lyme disease journey, please visit her Instagram page at Elizabeth A. Brannan. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of our post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick by blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get you automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, please take a minute to leave us an honest review or rating on iTunes and or our website. Thank you for listening.